I appreciate singing with you guys this morning. Could you? <laughs> Hope that didn't distract you. He said we could hear you. That could be a problem. Would you join me in one more word of prayer before we start? Father, as we step into the word together, I pray that you would be front and center. That your spirit would speak to us. That we would be attentive and hearing from your word. And that the time we invest together here might bring us closer to you at the end of the day. Amen. I have a, I, I got a couple of bits of news. We, we do this push out of our service to the internet to let folks who want to catch it be able to watch it. I had some different kind of comments from folks this morning. I had someone tell me they had picked up one of the sermons from a little while ago because they had read the passage the sermon was on, the, the one about the new wine a few weeks ago. And that was helpful. And that was thank you, thank you to these folks out here who are recording and then posting these things on YouTube. Um, we got a little picture because I remember I asked uh, the missing member of the Cox family to stand up. So she took a, a little picture of herself standing up and sent that to her dad. So she heard and she stood. So just so you know, you were clapping for all four Coxes today. And I got a little picture. Can you show that other picture, Sam? I got this picture. Pastor Tim and Anna are in Alaska. Now, it doesn't look cold enough to be Alaska, but that's where they are. They're in Alaska. And Tim was there all last week. Do you have the other picture, Sam? Yeah, that's what Tim was doing. He was chasing sea monsters. And if you look at that smile on his face, he was very happy to be holding his, I was going to say little friend, but that's not a little friend. Uh, Pastor Tim and Anna are watching from Alaska this morning, so good morning. Hi, you guys. Um, we are uh, happy that we're able to do that, to be able to reach out to you. And we're also happy that you guys are getting a little break, a little vacation, and that Tim caught a fish because it would be really miserable for him to come back from having gone all the way to Alaska having not caught any fish. Imagine the disdain he might receive from his friends and others. We are finishing up this little portion of Matthew. In fact, um, I don't know if you've been noticing how Matthew's been going over the last year, really. We've been dropping bits and pieces of Matthew in with some other sermon series that we've been doing for the purpose of not letting you get too bored. It would take us a long time to go through Matthew. And um, I once preached a sermon series on Moses, and it became a song in our church. Um, it was the 12 days of Christmas, and when you got to the five golden rings, it was 25 sermons on Moses. I checked, there were 16. 
But rather than allow this sermon series on Matthew to take an entire year of, of your time and every week you'd say, oh yeah, we're still in Matthew, we're still in Matthew, we're still in Matthew, we're, we're interspersing it with some other things that we want to share with you. And we'll be sharing a new series uh, in just a couple of weeks. We'll be actually tagging on to our Live Like Jesus theme and we'll be walking through some of that. Those, If you've been looking around the church, there are a list of people and it says uh, that you should worship like Abel, that you should walk like Enoch, etc. And at the bottom it says, live like Jesus. We're going to be working through the series, that series of examples of what it means to follow God for the next several weeks. And then we'll come back to Matthew when we get done with some other things. Okay, But we're going to wrap up this portion of Matthew. It's a good place to stop. At the end of chapter 9 is actually a concluding place for Matthew. Scene dramatically changes in chapter 10. And so we're going to be doing, we're going to be actually wrapping up this piece today. And so if you open your Bibles or you can follow along on the screen as we go, but we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus wraps it up, he says to his disciples, pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the fields. Um, this passage is often used as a way to twist your arm into doing personal evangelism. And I will do a little bit of that, but I promise to be gentle. Um, I do think it is a responsibility of the believer to share what they've learned and what they've been blessed by. Um, we are actually more commonly found sharing news about a new car we bought or a new television we have or whatever, a new item we've purchased, than we are to be found sharing the news of what Jesus is doing in our life. And that's a little bit of a tragedy, I think, because the next generation is depending on us. And so um, we're going we're gonna to walk through this passage together, and I think you'll see some things in here that are, uh, that are a little bit... Uh, a little bit of an interest, hopefully, and catch catch something maybe a little bit different. So I'd like you to read this with me. It's Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. We're going to read 35 through 38 together. We're going to do it out loud. I used to hate when we did this in first grade because I couldn't understand all the words. But you all know all the words, so here we go. Ready? Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Now, this last last section, I want you to read loud enough that they can hear you on the Internet, okay? Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So that's the section we're going to be talking about this morning as we're talking about it. Um, I want you to catch a little bit of something there. That this is the backside of an envelope. That verse 35 is the backside of an envelope that has a front and a back. Okay? Actually, clearly... Chapter 4, verse 23 is the other end of the envelope. It says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. That's one side of the envelope. The other side of the envelope is almost the exact same text. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Do you see how that's an envelope? 
Do you see that you have two sides of the envelope? And they're actually the same verse, almost exactly the same. But in the inside of the envelope, we've been looking really at the contents of the envelope from for the, the whole last several weeks. We looked at the Beatitudes, those beginning things Jesus said about this. He said, hey, the world you think you understand is completely different than you understand it. In the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, the rules are different. In fact, when you turn for home, when you recognize your need of God and turn for home, that's all repentance means. It means going in a different direction. And you turn for home, the kingdom of heaven is yours. And he said, when you walk through your whole spiritual life and spiritual maturity is happening to you and he's working his way through the Beatitudes and he gets to the last one. You see, in the in the kingdom that they understood, in the first century Jewish understanding of, of, of belief and what it meant to follow God, if you were persecuted, God no longer liked you. Jesus said, actually, it's really amazing if you're being persecuted. It's awesome if you're being persecuted. That means other people have begun to see your spirituality. It's amazing if you're being persecuted. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus puts this envelope there as well around what it means to be a person who has access to the kingdom of heaven. You turn for home, you have the kingdom of heaven because it's by grace that you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. And as you move through your spiritual life, it becomes so clear that you're a superstar of spirituality that the devil attacks you personally. Don't worry about it. The next, the worst thing he can do is kill you and the next thing you see is Jesus because yours is guaranteed the kingdom of heaven and then he goes on to say okay this is what that spirituality thing looks like if you apply it not by by the fingers and the hands but by the heart that when your heart is involved it changes things man it makes it it makes hatred to your brother a sinful thing you you can try to hold hatred in your heart but the reality is God sees your heart And he said, man, you need to understand this thing applies inside, not just on the exterior of your life. And then he goes through a series of different kingdom impacting ideas. He heals a leper and he touches the guy. He heals the servant of a centurion. He does all kinds of radical things. And then he goes out across the lake and a storm starts and he calms the storm. He goes across the lake. He runs into a guy who is so frighteningly embodying Satan's own children that he scares everybody off. He rips chains. He cuts himself. He lives among the tombs. Jesus runs into that guy and he heals him. The power of Jesus is being shown to us as immense. He goes into the city of Capernaum, heals everybody. The text says everyone in Capernaum was healed. People start dropping their friends through the roof to get next to Jesus. Start bringing blind people to Jesus. They start bringing mute people to Jesus. And there is no one who comes in contact with Jesus, even if they barely reach out and touch the hem of his garment, who isn't affected by their faith being in contact with that authority. And we come to the far end of the envelope. We've emptied the contents of the envelope and Matthew takes us back. Takes us back to this concept and he says, this is what was going on. The envelope, the envelope, Jesus went about teaching and preaching, is enclosing the contents of what that means. Do you get this? When Jesus is going about teaching, preaching, and healing, the, the envelope, teaching, preaching, and healing, contains the contents 
of what that actually is. What does teaching look like? Oh, he went up on the mountain and he started talking and teaching. He applied this thing to your personal heart, your life. He said the kingdom that he's talking about is upside down from everyone else. And oh, by the way, he's bringing good news. Good news that you have access to the kingdom. Good news that he is bringing access to the kingdom. Good news that it can't be taken away from you even by persecution. And he began healing everyone that came in touch with him. And multitudes of people started following him. The contents of the envelope are the messages between 423 and 935. Make sense? So you didn't think there was a lot of order and structure to this thing, did you? Well, there's a ton of order and structure here. The structure that Matthew is putting together is very carefully outlined. Very carefully laid out. He is not being haphazard about this at all. He is very carefully teaching us that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. All power of heaven and earth is in him. He is our king. And so when he comes to the end, I just want to review who Jesus is from Matthew's space. He says first that Jesus went about to all the cities and villages teaching. There are about 200 villages in that region. Jesus went around a couple of different times to these villages. A couple are mentioned here, but a couple of different times that sometimes are a year or more apart. Jesus is going around to the villages and he's teaching. Not all these villages are going to have a synagogue, but the bigger ones will all have a synagogue. There's a great synagogue in Chorazim. If you ever get to Chorazim, you should try to get to Israel and get to these places if you can. It's, as Claire said earlier, feet on the ground in a place like this changes the way you understand things. Feet on the ground in the biblical places changes the way you understand things. So save your quarters, skip your trip to Hawaii a couple of years and go to Israel. Really, it will be awesome. And it'll take a couple of trips to Hawaii to pay for it. But it's really worth the investment. In Chorazin, it's everything is made out of basalt. Basalt is that really hard black volcanic rock. In Chorazin, the arches for part of the city are part of the buildings in the city are still standing. Nothing else. Just these black basalt arches. It was a little creepy to walk under them. I'm thinking, if there was an earthquake right now, would that thing still hold? And then I thought, well, it's been up there for a, a couple thousand years. It should. It's obviously been through an earthquake before. But I really don't want to test it, so I kind of hurried through that portion. But if you go into the synagogue, they've got the synagogue leader's seat. And now I know where sitting in the back comes from. The preferred seats in church apparently have always been in the back. The synagogue leader's seat was in the back of the church, right by the door. So he could say hi to everybody as they were coming in. Apparently you had to be a really outgoing person to be the synagogue leader. And it was an elevated seat, so you were kind of sitting up above everybody. I took my seat in the synagogue leader's seat. Most of us did. Most of us have pictures of ourselves sitting in that seat. Again, a hard rock basalt seat, probably had big cushions and stuff on it when he was sitting in it. If you get a chance... Go check it out. These synagogues dotted the area and Jesus would go in and teach. Now we have one example of this when Jesus goes into Nazareth and he stands up and he reads and he says, today this is, this is fulfilled in your ears. Remember that story? That is the kind of thing that would go. For us, it would be more like a discipleship class or a, a training event. It would be more like they would read a text and then they would discuss that text. A lot like our discipleship classes here. You read something and you discuss that thing. The, the group would discuss it. This is that conversation we let your women keep silent in church. Contextually, the men were supposed to talk. The women were supposed to not add their part into the discussion. They were just supposed to sit quietly and listen. And apparently some women were shouting over the barrier, telling the men what they thought about the about 
about the, the, the text and or just visiting. And whichever it was, it was distracting from the conversation they were trying to have. That's what Let Your Women Be Silent in Church is talking about, by the way. So the translation here would be, let your women be silent in Sabbath school. They have their own Sabbath school class. Maybe that's what we mean by segregating them from the rest of us. Jesus goes into the synagogues. The role in the synagogue is different. He's teaching. So if you look at what Jesus has done, the things that are in this message that we've read, the things that, are, that we've, we've seen... The kinds of things that are in the Beatitudes are the things he would be teaching. The kinds of things that are where he's applying spirituality, not to your fingers, but to your heart, those are the kinds of things that would be content for the teaching. He would be explaining those things. The only, we really only see him interacting a lot in teaching terms with his disciples. The clear thing that we know about Jesus is he says, I'm not teaching my own things. I'm teaching the things my Father gave me. If you ever find yourself in the role of a teacher, and every one of us does, The one thing you must be most certain of is that the things you are teaching are true. That the things you are teaching are as true as you understand them. As true as you understand them. They are biblically aligned with what God is teaching. They are true. The most significant thing about teaching. Now the second thing is is also, it also better be true. It also says that Jesus was preaching. Now, preaching is much more like what we're doing right here. Jesus would gather groups of people, crowds in various places, and he'd talk to them. That's what we see with the Sermon on the Mount. We actually see him talking to the people. He's proclaiming, he's heralding this new kingdom. He's talking to large groups of people, not just the small group that would be in the synagogue that are more intent on uh, sort of philosophical understandings and things of that nature, theological discussions. This is more, how do you express Christianity for the masses? How do you express this this revolutionary new kingdom for the grand group of people out there who are actually not welcome much in the synagogue? All those those malcontents and all those non-fitters, all those square pegs and round holes, he's talking to lots and lots and lots of folks. People in the first century, the, the regular people, the hoi polloi, the rest of us, They were not seen to be as loved by God. They were seen as despised by God. They were seen as some sort of of lower being, not really the people who God embraced and God loved. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests and the leaders, those were the people God loved. There was no question about it. So the rest of the folks were just folks. And for the Pharisees and for the leaders of the church, they were kind kind of the dirty malaise of stuff they had to deal with. They weren't really to be embraced and drawn in. And yet Jesus spends a great deal of his time investing in the people that were regularly despised by those who were supposed to be their leaders. We'll get back to this in a minute. Jesus spends a great deal of his time. I I in fact would argue it's a majority of his time investing in people whom the rest of Jewish religious leadership is casting aside. We'll come across this word in a little bit in the, in, in when Jesus is looking across the crowd. The, the, it literally means cast down, to throw something away. It's that, it's that pot in the first century that they, it was cracked and they just threw it against the wall. They just threw it out in the trash and it just went all, broke all over the place. Jesus spends a great deal of his time investing in the people who are rejected and cast aside by the primary leadership of the world, of the religious world. That's us. 
That really is us. By first century measures, there might be a, a, a couple of you folks who would make the cut. Most of us would be sideline dwellers. Most of us wouldn't be invited into the game. Most of us wouldn't be lined up to be picked for teams. They, they, wouldn't even, they wouldn't even let us join the line to possibly be picked for teams because we just weren't making the cut. That's, that's really us. What's amazing about Christianity is actually all of us. What's amazing about Christianity is that Christianity says God loves the broken. Those who know they're broken, especially. So welcome to the family of the broken. That's what our family is really about. And the last thing in this triad of things, preaching, teaching, preaching, and healing. He goes around caring for the obvious physical needs of humanity. Jesus' heart is broken by people's brokenness. Whether it be spiritual or physical, he doesn't ignore either one of them. Uh, the, the great, one of the great images of this is the young man who is lowered through the roof by his friends. Do you remember what the first engagement between him and Jesus is? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Because what was on the man's heart was the brokenness of his spiritual situation. He knew himself to be spiritually impoverished and in need of Jesus. And so Jesus comes to that need primarily. And from the story, we can't even tell if Jesus was planning on going further. He may have been. He probably was. But Jesus uses the excuse of the Pharisees' sort of mumblings under their breath to heal the man. So that you might know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. Rise up and walk. Leaping and jumping and doing backflips and yelling and yelling and, and yipping and he goes home. Jesus' heart is broken by a person's brokenness. We are ashamed of our brokenness. And Jesus' heart is broken by our brokenness. And where those two meet is wholeness. Where we finally, in the recognition of our brokenness, come to the one who has the real answer, in dire need, in broken, tiny little bits of fragmented faith, whatever our circumstances, to come to the one who wants nothing more to save than to save us, is to find healing. Spiritual, physical, emotional healing. And I know that we all say, I haven't always had the physical healing I wanted, but if you get the spiritual healing, the physical healing is a promise for everyone. And just remember the population explosion if we all got healed every time we asked. We'd be standing on each other. So Jesus went about the countryside teaching and preaching and healing. But when he saw the multitudes, so now think of this not as a, a picture in a moment of time. Think of this as a description of normal. 
When Jesus looked out at a multitude, when Jesus looked out at a crowd, when Jesus looked out at a group of people, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. I want to go to that move with compassion. This is a word we've, we've actually spoken of before in church. It's been a long time. We have spoken of this word before. It's almost unpronounceable for me. I'm going to take it again. That's, that's splunk, not, 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 splunk, nizomai. Got it? Splunk, nizomai. You can practice that for home. Splunk, nizomai. The word is talking about that feeling in your gut when something just gets you. When you just can't handle what you're looking at, when someone's brokenness or someone's pain, when you're feeling true empathy and you feel it right here, the word is actually talking about your guts. It says, my guts are aching for this. My gut hurts about this. I feel this right here. This is getting to me where it counts. I mean, I feel your pain. This is empathy on a personal level. This is not some theoretical empathy. This is, oh my goodness, it hurts to see them hurt like this. When Jesus saw the multitude, it touched him. It got him. It really got right in the gut. That's what this is saying. This is like a punch in the gut for Jesus to see these people. When he looked on the multitudes, as Jesus traveled around from place to place, teaching and preaching and healing, and a multitude of people gathered, and he looked out across the, 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 the multitudes that were gathered, it got him right in the gut. Because when he saw them, he just didn't see faces. He saw hearts breaking. He saw limbs in, limbs in need of healing. He saw all of their heartfelt brokenness, and it touched him, and it got to him. You know, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, is if we can look on another person's pain without being touched at all, we might want to go and have a little time with Jesus. We have, we live in a crazy place. We live in a, a place and a time when everything gets publicity. And we have fights and, about our opinions about the responses of people we don't even know. And we have commercials come on about, uh, you know, dogs and cats and people, and they, they treat them all like they're the same. Starving dogs and cats and starving children are all given the same background music, and it just drives me nuts. That bothers me, but it doesn't bother me here. It bothers me here. It makes me mad. But we look at so many things that are drawing, trying to pull on our emotions that it's very easy to become callous. And, and, and maybe, maybe it would be better if we saw less, fewer images of it and engaged it personally and practically. If we stepped up to the person's need nearest us and just engaged and turned off the television or the internet or wherever else you were getting the information. Because remember, anything you get through that little box has been packaged for you by somebody who has an opinion about how it should be responded to. Maybe if we just engaged face-to-face, it would get more of our gut. It might get us a little more. When Jesus saw large groups of people, he didn't just see masses and faces. 
their hurt hurt him physically. And then the description he gives of them. They were weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. He's calling on Ezekiel. He's calling on Zechariah. He's calling on Jeremiah. He's calling on the prophets of old who describe Israel again and again and again as sheep without a shepherd. Sheep whose leaders are not teaching them or not directing them or not guiding them to God. Now in the Old Testament, they, they got it. Everybody, everybody in the first century said, yeah, those Old Testament people were terrible. They were not idolaters and they weren't teaching the people about God. They didn't even celebrate the Passover. They didn't even celebrate this. They didn't even do what they're, and they're just, you know, they could get up and get real riled up about what those people back there used to do. Isn't it easy to get mad at people who don't exist anymore? To look back and say, bad, bad people. They can't yell back at you. They can't defend themselves. So yeah, they're okay. Ezekiel says they're sheep without a shepherd. Yep. Jeremiah says they're sheep without a shepherd. Yep. Zechariah says they're sheep without a shepherd. Bad shepherd, bad shepherd, bad shepherd. And then Jesus comes along and he said, I saw the multitude right here in the midst of you. I saw this massive multitude of people and they were all like sheep without a shepherd, scattered about, cast down. The word here that is being described, again, to, to, we won't get into a bunch of Greek words, but the, the word here is actually being cast away. They're thrown aside. These are the people whom society has tossed away. These are the throwaway people. These are the don't count people. Jesus is looking out at the people. About 90% of the population, the religious authority considers castaway, worthless, not keeping. They're the trash. Should be thrown on the trash heap. Jesus looks at him and his heart breaks. Because these people who he loves, these people who are his children, these people who don't just get him here, but get him here, are unloved, unappreciated, and cast aside. How do you think the church is doing today? I'm not just talking about ours. But I'm wondering if Jesus looked at the multitudes of Americans. If his heart would break. Because the people who were given the message of hope and healing don't consider them worth the time to share it with them. How's the church in the 21st century doing? Jesus, heartbroken, turns to his disciples. And he says, the harvest is truly plentiful. Now, before we get off of that passage, do you recognize he's saying that the hurting are ripe for a message of healing? We, we, we tend to make this an evangelistic thing where we separate ourselves from the person we say, we, we should baptize those people and we get this, I don't know, there's this mechanical numbers counting, box checking, notching the belt thing that we do. What Jesus is saying is not about notching belts. 
It's about healing hearts. It's about loving neighbors. It's about saying, your pain gets me right here. And so I'm going to step forward and do what I can. I'm going to do what I can. We've talked about this. We've talked about the, the, the calamity that people invite themselves into and have no interest in your help. But we also know people who do. We all live in a world that needs the help. The harvest that's being spoken of here is a harvest of healed hearts. It's a harvest of healed hearts. That's what the church is about. He turns to the disciples. A dozen of them there. The 70 are probably somewhere nearby. There's another group that we find Jesus sending out in a little while. The 70. They're probably there nearby as well. But he turns to them and he says, Oh, my, do you see all these people? They need, they need a touch. They need some connection with the authority and power of God. They need somebody who can love them and touch them and care about them and heal them and teach them and point them toward me. They need somebody. The harvest is plentiful. There are broken hearts aplenty. But the laborers are few. This is a very interesting passage. Because he doesn't say, so get on your horse, guys, and go for it. He says, pray for more help. It's easy, and we use this passage all the time to try to twist people up. And I hope it twists you up a little on its own merits. But Jesus' answer is not... Okay, this week each one of you will talk to 135 people. If we do that all for 10 weeks, then we'll make sure that we cover the entirety of Rockland by then. This isn't a strategy. This is empathy. This is recognizing the need of our fellow man and bringing them Jesus. Pray for more harvesters. There is one comp- one thing, one qualification for joining the harvesting band. It's a pretty simple thing. It's altering. It's life-changing. But what it takes to be in the midst of the harvest is a deep compassion for people far from God. That's all. It doesn't take a theology degree. It doesn't take one of those dramatic conversion stories, you know, of I, I, was, I was a terrible person who used to kill everybody and now I'm wonderful and amazing. It just takes deep Gut, gut felt compassion for people who are far from God.
I would invite you to redefine what it means to love your neighbor on those terms. To have a deep, heartfelt, gut-felt compassion for those who are far from God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Matthew's powerful picture of how you feel. Lord, it's hard not to recognize that the answer to the prayer of the disciples for more harvesters dwells in a church worth over a billion followers of Jesus around the world. It dwells in our own denomination with over 20 million specific followers of Jesus around the world. It dwells at Grace Point with 600 followers of Jesus in our town, in our communities. Help us to know what our individual experience of compassion for people who are far from you, who are heartbroken. Help us to know what our specific step into someone's need looks like. And help us never to be able to look into the eyes of another person without recognizing you. In Jesus' name we pray.